invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 6. John 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he himself would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now says the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being gathered together as your people. We thank you for providing a place for us to meet. Lord, we pray now that you would do what only you can to open up our ears, eyes, hearts, and minds. Lord, we pray that we would receive your word for what it is, the word of God and not the word of man. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way, maybe your truth, uh, coming alive in the hearts of your people by the power of your spirit. And we pray that you be glorified in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> So we pick up again in our series in John, and we are in uh, now John chapter 6. And uh, just to give a little bit of a preview of what, where we'll be going here, uh, John 6 is one of the chapters that I have been the most excited to get to, uh, to preach from. Jesus will continue to say things through John 6 that are absolutely staggering. In John 6, we get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of eternity. A little glimpse into some of the triune God's purposes extending back into eternity past. Jesus will teach us some remarkable things about human nature. will teach us the limitations of our capacities <clears throat> due to our deadness and sin. And he will teach on the effectual power of the Holy Spirit in drawing sinners to himself, as well as the perfect preservation of all the saints given to him by the Father. But all of this conversation and meaty, theological, theologically rich dialogue uh, begins in response to a miracle that Jesus performed. And it is to that miracle that we turn our attention today. John chapter 6, verse 1. 
After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So after this, that is sometime after uh, the last discussion which followed the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda, uh, sometime after that in the conversation about the authority of Jesus which followed, Jesus then went to the Sea of Galilee with a large crowd following after him. And we're given a detail uh, that should set off some alarm bells in our minds. Notice the reason that John says this crowd was following Jesus. Look with me in the text. It says, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now here we get an indication from John that there is something lacking in this crowd. John, to this point, has not been painting a very favorable portrait of those who followed after Jesus simply because of his miracles. Remember back in John chapter 2, verse 23, it said that many people believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. That is, he knew what was really in their hearts. He knew there was something lacking, as we uh, covered. They were easily moved because they were not deeply moved. Jesus showed some exasperation with the people of Judea, who appear to have only given him the warm, the warm welcome that they did, again, because of the signs that he had been performing. And so John gives us this clue that this crowd may not be following him for the right reasons. Right? It says they came and followed him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. What they failed to understand was the purpose of the signs, the point of the signs. What, what does a sign do? A sign signifies something. It communicates something. It points to something. And so we ask the question, what did these signs point us to? Right, what were they communicating? Well, as Jesus said in uh, chapter 5, verse 36, uh, the works he was doing, including the, the miracles, the signs, these works bore witness to the fact that the Father had sent him. They testified about him. They revealed his identity, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is Savior and he is Lord. He is, therefore, to be believed in. He is to be received as Lord and Savior. He is to be honored, even as we honor the Father. And as we'll see, this must all be on his terms. We are not free to try to make Jesus into something that he isn't. Because he is Lord, we must follow him. We must come to him for who he really is. Lord, Messiah, God, Master, Savior, and a different kind of king than what the Jews of his day appear to have wanted. Let's continue on. We'll, we'll see this unfold. Verse 3. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, from the other gospel accounts we have of this story, uh, we see that Jesus' intention initially was just to have uh, some time alone with his disciples 
But having been recognized, he then had large crowds gathered to him. And I think verse 4 gives us an explanation as to why there were so many people uh, out and about at this time. Verse 4 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now this helps us out for a number of reasons. Uh, Firstly, you may know that the Passover uh, was one of the pilgrimage feasts. And that is, it was one of three feasts in the year when all the men of Israel were required to go and appear before the Lord. Exodus 23, 17. This explains then why there were literally thousands of people just out in the Galilean countryside. These were pilgrims on their way to the Passover feast. Secondly, the topic of Passover sets the stage for some of the discussion that will follow. As we'll see, Jesus will get uh, compared to Moses. Uh, There will be a discussion of uh, some of these things and understanding the Passover as the background will help us there. And thirdly, uh, D.A. Carson notes that for the Jews at the time, the Passover feast was a time of great patriotism, a time of nationalistic zeal. I can think of, if you've ever been uh, in the U.S. during the 4th of July, uh, that weekend, there is a lot of patriotism. And D.A. Carson says there's something similar here for the Jews at Passover. And so this might help explain why the crowd uh, seeks to force Jesus to be their king uh, following the miracle. Let's continue on in verse 5. Lifting his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little now, a denarius, one, one denarius was a standard day's wage for a laborer, right? So, uh, 200 denarii, a denarii, uh, would be 200 days' wages. And so, Philip says, I could work for literally months, and it wouldn't earn enough money to buy even a small amount of food for this massive crowd. But Jesus was testing Philip. Remember, Philip was one of his first disciples. Philip has been with him from the beginning and has undoubtedly seen many of the miracles that Jesus has performed up to this point. He has likely seen Jesus turn water into wine. He has witnessed him meet the needs of the many sick and disabled people who have come to Jesus for healing. But now attest, had Philip begun to understand who Jesus really was? Did he see that Jesus truly is one who can meet any need? The student has learned individual facts, but has he laid hold of the principle which underlies them? Says Charles Ellicott. So Philip hears this question, sees the crowd, right? 5,000 men plus women and children. And he responds with what seems like a very practical and common sense answer. Right? Even if there was a store close by that had a stock room with enough food for all of these thousands of people, it would take more money than we have to even buy a small amount for these people. There is no way we can do this. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, 
But what are they for so many? Andrew answers Jesus' question about where we can find some bread, and he brings this boy, uh, shows Jesus what they have, uh, five loaves and two fish. Uh, perhaps this was meant to be provisions for the journey to Jerusalem. Uh, perhaps it was actually intended for Jesus and his disciples. Right? We see this is more than just one lunch. I don't know about you, but I've never sat down to five full loaves for lunch. Um, uh, so more than a lunch, but obviously nothing in the face of thousands and thousands of people. Right? What is this little bit uh, for so many people? Jesus then said, have the people sit down. There's much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And we know from the other gospel accounts that there was also uh, women and children uh, as well. So the number would have been much larger. Uh, not that it makes much of a difference to the story when you consider the miracle of multiplying food. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and they filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So we see here now is the miracle. Jesus took five loaves and two fish, and he multiplied it. Months of work would not have been able to provide enough for all of these people to get even a small taste. And so Jesus now provides enough that all of them were satisfied. Right? All of them had eaten their fill, and there was 12 baskets full of leftovers. Thousands of people fed, full bellies, fully satisfied. Now before we move on, let us just see our Savior's heart in this miracle. So firstly, as we mentioned, we do see some criticism in this text uh, toward the crowd, uh, some criticism toward miracle chasers. Right, people who would follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. But what we ought to see is that this miracle was done because of the compassion that Jesus had for these people. Uh, Mark draws it out in his account of this miracle, Mark 6.34. Uh, Mark writes, When Jesus went ashore and he saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Christ, we see in Mark's account, taught these crowds and provided for them out of his compassion. Remember, Jesus knew all people. Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and so he undoubtedly knew that many of these people were there just as miracle chasers. Jesus undoubtedly knew that many in this crowd who would even claim to follow him would be fickle. As we'll see in John chapter 6, many of those who claimed to be his disciples would turn back from following him. And yet fickle and wrong-headed as they may have been in their motivations, Jesus saw them and had compassion on them. This is comforting. For I don't know about you, but I often see myself here by the grace of God, not abandoning Christ, but frequently doing things with mixed motives. 
I see myself and know that even my greatest acts of service to Christ, my most sincere moments of devotion and worship and service, still falls infinitely short of what Christ is really worth. So to know and to see in the text that my Savior looks with compassion even upon fickle and unfaithful crowds brings me comfort. For how much more will Christ not look with compassion upon his own blood-bought bride, church? Psalm 103, verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Our Lord knows our weaknesses. Jesus partook of flesh and blood. He knows what it is to, to be weak as we are weak, to suffer as we suffer. He understands. He knows our frame. He knows our mixed motives. And he looks and has compassion on us in our weaknesses. Take comfort in knowing the compassion of our Savior's heart. And let us take comfort, too, seeing that God is not limited by our meager offerings. Right, five loaves and two fish was, again, probably more than one lunch. But obviously, we do nothing to feed thousands. And so this boy offered what little he had, and Christ used it. We remember who Jesus is. As John has shown us in his introduction, this is God the Son, the eternal Word of God, having entered into his own creation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let us remember how it is that God created in the beginning. God created ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. You know, my grandpa liked to tell the story of a scientist who wanted to challenge God. He told God that he had things all figured out, that he now knew uh, how to make a human being. And so God accepted the challenge, and the scientist, now very pleased, said, Okay, give me some dirt. And God said, Make your own. And consider this is how God made the world. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. God did not need any pre-existing materials. He did not need anything here to work with. He is not a potter who found some clay that he could then fashion the universe out of. He simply spoke to the void, and the void obeyed him. Right? He spoke to nothing, and nothing obeyed him by becoming everything. Let there be, then there was, and it was good. This is the power of God. This is the God that we serve. And so we must remember that our limitations are nothing for God. They are no obstacle for Christ. Dear congregation, be encouraged. For as we look to our own weaknesses, as we look to our feeble offerings, uh, what might seem to us to be very, very little in the face of the challenges uh, of the tasks we have at hand. Let us remember that our God is not limited. 
the God who made all things out of nothing, is the God who fed thousands with five loaves and two fish. He can and does take the very feeble offerings of his people and multiply them. So let us not faithlessly assume that our problems or our tasks are too big. Let us not faithlessly assume that God will not be able to meet the need because we do not have enough to offer him. God is not limited by our limitations. He simply calls us to faithfulness. So bring the Lord what you have. Give him all that you've got. Bring your wholehearted obedience, your fullest effort, and trust the Lord with the results, knowing that he can do more than all that we could ask or imagine. Let's continue on in our text. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And that raises a question. What are they referring to here? Uh, what is this about a prophet who was to come? Well, you may remember in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, uh, Moses had prophesied, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. And it is to him that you will listen. I may remember earlier in John, uh, the messengers of the Pharisees had come to John the Baptist, and they were trying to figure out, who, who are you? And one of the questions they asked him, uh, are you the prophet? Uh, John denied it. And so now here, this crowd, having seen the miracle that Jesus has just performed, they have become convinced, here he is. This now, this is the prophet. Here is the prophet like Moses. We have found him, the one we've been waiting for, the one whose coming was prophesied centuries before. And actually, in this, they were right. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. May remember, what is it that set Moses apart from the other prophets? Well, it was in the fact that God spoke to him directly. As God says to Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So, if God spoke to Moses directly and face to face, and Moses beheld God, and this was what set Moses apart as a unique prophet, then how much greater ought we to regard Jesus the very Son of God, the one who has been for eternity at the Father's side, the one who hears directly what the Father tells him to speak. Remember at the Transfiguration when Jesus was uh, transformed in his appearance before Peter, James, and John, he became radiant, his clothes became white, his face was shining. And then Moses and Elijah appeared there also, and it was there, in the presence of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, that God the Father speaks from heaven to commend whom? Not Moses, not Elijah, but Christ. He says, this is my beloved son, 
with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Again, what did Moses prophesy? That a prophet like him would come, raised up from among your brothers, and it would be to him that you would listen. And so at the transfiguration, here now, is Moses and Elijah, and the Father declares, Jesus is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Now there are a whole host of ways that Jesus gets compared to Moses, especially if you read through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we won't get into all of those today, but suffice it for now that the crowd was right on this point. Jesus is the prophet, like Moses, the one who was prophesied. And so it is somewhat ironic that the people seem to have missed the instruction that followed the prophecy. Remember, what was the instruction? The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me, says Moses, and it is to him that you shall listen. Tragically, this crowd did not seem interested in listening to Jesus. They instead were intent on pursuing their own agenda. Notice verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We see this crowd had certain ideas of what they thought their Messiah was supposed to be and do. In chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus had made reference to those others who had come in their own names. Uh, this was referring to several false messiahs who had gained followers, declared themselves to be somebody, but whose movements ultimately came to nothing. The false messiahs named by Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5 were both rebels who led resistance movements against Rome. Right? Theodos and Judas the Galilean. And so this really does seem to be what the Jews were hoping for in their Messiah. Remember, at this time, Israel is under Roman occupation. All the nations that Rome would conquer would be forced to give tribute, pay taxes, uh, and be uh, numbered in a census at the will of the Roman Caesar. Remember, that's what was happening during the birth of Christ. And so the Jews desperately wanted freedom from Roman occupation, and much of the messianic fervor, right, the excitement about a coming Messiah at the time, involved the expectation that the Messiah would be the leader who would finally throw off the shackles of Rome. Right, Judas the Galilean, as well as Theodos, both of these false messiahs resisted Rome. They led these resistance movements. And both of them were killed as they led their little rebellions against Rome. And so this crowd now sees Jesus perform this miracle, and they try to make him king by force, likely with the hope that he would now be able to do what these previous messiahs had not done, and that is deliver Israel from Roman rule. We can understand it, practically speaking. A king who can multiply food to feed thousands could very easily supply an army. This king would be able to heal all of your injured soldiers. They have heard him speak and teach with authority. Just think of the kind of, uh, the way that he'd be able to rally the troops with a rousing speech if he wanted to. 
So here at last is the one we've been waiting for. Here is the prophet like Moses, the Messiah that we have wanted. Let's make him king. But Jesus would, would not have it. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We see that the people's enthusiasm about Jesus appears to have been based on the idea that Jesus was now going to do for them what they wanted. As John hinted at in the opening of our story, this crowd was there because they had seen Jesus perform signs. These are miracle chasers with faulty messianic expectations. There is a great irony between verses 14 and verses 15. Look with me here. Notice that they first identify him as the prophet who was to come, and their very next plan is to try to take him by force, right? to force him to do something, uh, whether he wanted to do it or not. Now, why is that ironic? Well, remember again, what was the instruction that went along with this prophecy? It is to him you will listen. What is a prophet? Someone who delivers God's word to his people. What would the proper response have been, right? You've now seen him do this miracle. You've identified him as the prophet like Moses. What should be the next thing you do? This is not someone that you would seek to control. This is not someone that you are going to dictate to. This is someone you must listen to. Someone who will teach you. The signs testified to who Jesus really was. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. If the crowd would have responded rightly, they would have sat quietly and patiently to be taught by their prophet. To be taught about the true nature of his kingdom. Jesus did not come to be a military leader. The purpose of his coming was not to liberate physical Israel from the hand of their Roman oppressors. Jesus was not simply another insurrectionist leader like Theodos or Judas the Galilean. Jesus is the king, but as he explains when brought on trial, his kingdom is not of this world. Now that is, has been a grossly misunderstood and misapplied statement. Many people have used this to say that Jesus' kingdom, therefore, has no real impact upon the world. Right? That Christ is perhaps king in the church, or king in the hearts and minds of his people, but that his claims to kingship don't extend beyond the walls of the church building. For his kingdom is not of this world. Christians, therefore, they say, should keep their faith to themselves. They should not engage with the culture or the world around them, and should certainly not bring the claims of Christ into the public square. His kingdom is not of this world. But again, if you look at the text in context, you will see that is not what Jesus was saying. 
John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Catch this explanation. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus explains what he means when he says his kingdom is not of this world. That it's not from this world. He says, if it were of the world, from the world, then his servants would have been fighting to prevent his arrest. Right? That's what a kingdom of the world does. That's what a kingdom from the world does. That's how earthly kingdoms advance. That is how they conquer. Jesus says, that is not how my kingdom works. My authority is not from the world. It is not dependent upon military power. Christ's kingdom, therefore, does not advance at the point of a sword. It is not that type of kingdom. Jesus did come to establish his kingdom, but it would be established not through military force, not through a revolt or a rebellion, but through death and resurrection. Now, whether the people recognized it or not, they all had a much greater need than liberation from Rome. They had a much more powerful and oppressive enemy that needed to be defeated. And this is what Christ really came to do. Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ came to conquer, but not to conquer any physical nations, but he came to conquer sin, death, and Satan, as it says, not through military force, but through death, he would destroy the one who had the power of death. We are all, by nature, slaves to the power of sin. We are, by nature, under the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is king, and he did come to establish a kingdom. One that would rival not merely the earthly kingdoms of men, but one that would rival and conquer the kingdom of darkness. What we need, what they needed, was not just a king who would deliver them from Rome. They needed a king who would deliver them from Satan, from sin and death. Thanks be to God, this is the kingdom of Christ. As Paul says of the church in Colossae, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.13 Christ's kingdom now expands, not the point of a sword or a gun, not through military might or power, but through a much more powerful means. Christ's kingdom expands as hearts are transformed by the power of the Spirit through the proclamation of the unconquerable gospel. 
sinners in lifelong slavery to sin on the path to condemnation and judgment are rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God where there is redemption and forgiveness of sins. Christ is king, and his kingdom absolutely does have an impact in this world. For wherever the gospel takes root, it brings transformation. The fruit of Christ's kingdom is peace, because it produces forgiven men and women who will then forgive as they've been forgiven. Produces men and women who will love their neighbors as themselves. Men and women who will bless when reviled, who will love as their father loves. It produces men and women who will care for the least of these, who have concern for those suffering and in need. Men and women who will defend and care for the widow and the orphan, the sojourner and the stranger. Christ's kingdom produces men and women devoted to justice, not the perverted form of our culture, but of true biblical justice, pushing back against wickedness, functioning as real preserving salt and real darkness-terrifying light. It produces men and women with a concern for the lost, who will bring the hope of the gospel to all who will hear. The gospel brings freedom and transformation. And so to the extent that the gospel takes root, it brings transformation to individuals, and transformed individuals are blessings to everyone around them. And in that way, all are blessed through any manifestation of the kingdom of God. Christ is our king. He is the king, the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is also the prophesied prophet like Moses. As king and prophet, he is the one with supreme authority, and we must listen to him. Jesus cannot be manipulated. We see this crowd sought to make him king by force, but Jesus did not let them. Jesus instead withdrew to the mountain. Now why? Well, as John Piper puts it, because the enthusiasm for, of these people is not for who he really is. This is so important for our day and for your life. People can have a great enthusiasm for Jesus, but the Jesus they're excited about is not the real, biblical Jesus, close quote. As we saw, this crowd had certain expectations and desires they wanted filled. And they tried to force Jesus to fit that mold. And this continues to be a temptation today. As this crowd had done, many people will create a view of Jesus in their minds that fits what they want. They will essentially remake Jesus into their own image. They will make for themselves, for example, perhaps a view of Jesus that is all tolerance and affirmation. A Jesus who would never speak against any sin, except perhaps the sins of religious people. Or perhaps on the opposite end of the spectrum, another false Jesus, one who only ever speaks condemnation. A false Jesus who shows no love, patience, or compassion to those in sin. 
or perhaps a false Jesus who condemns big external sins but would give a free pass to sins of the heart. This is the false Messiah of the self-righteous. I think for our church, this second example is likely the greater temptation. That temptation is to create a view of Jesus as one who condemns the sins of the world, right? the sins of those people out there, meanwhile giving a free pass to all manner of comparatively smaller sins. Now it's true that not all sins are equally heinous or destructive in this life, but we must be willing to listen to our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, the real Jesus, does not privilege any sins. Now one of Satan's most effective schemes is to deceive people about the state of their own souls. To convince them that because they aren't cheating on their spouse, or out gambling, or stealing, or getting drunk, doing those big external sins, that because they're not doing those big things, they must be doing all right. But here's the reality. If we would simply listen to Christ, rather than create a false Messiah in our minds, we would learn that our God wants more than just a tidy exterior. Hear the words of our Savior. Listen to our prophet, priest, and king. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all manner of uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Notice it is entirely possible to live a life that appears righteous from the outside. You can present very well. The people in your life might speak very highly of you, yet you may have a heart full of death. It is possible to be like a whitewashed tomb, ornate, polished, very beautiful on the outside, yet full of dead bones, rot and decay on the inside. Take a brutally honest stock of yourselves. Pride, arrogance, bitterness, unforgiveness, malice, covetousness, hatred, discontentment, and many more. These are all sins that can be easily hidden from even your church family. It's even possible to hold these sins with an attitude of self-righteousness. Thinking yourself above others, thinking that God is very, very pleased with you because you're not doing those external things, yet while your heart is full of death. Brothers and sisters, friends, do not harden your hearts to the words of Christ. 
if you just found yourself feeling angry <clears throat> or defensive toward what I've just said, then there's a very good chance that this is something that you're dealing with. Right? If this has struck a nerve, there's very likely uh, something in you to work on. Do not let your pride send you to hell. So if your view you have of Christ has to this point let you off the hook with regard to those sins of the heart, then you are very much like this crowd, and you have a false Messiah. For the true biblical Jesus came not merely to provide bread, but he came to be bread. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ came not to lead an insurrection against Rome, not merely to provide physical bread, but to give himself the bread of life. As the bread is broken in the Lord's Supper, so too Christ's body was broken for us. Christ's true purpose was to establish a kingdom, but not a kingdom from the world. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Christians, our sin was punished in him. His body was broken for us. His blood poured out unto death. This was the sacrifice for our sin. All our sin. Our sins were nailed to the cross and buried with Christ. Becoming a Christian means being united with him so that his death to sin is counted as our death to sin. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is what it is to be a Christian. Our sins were nailed to the cross, and so we are to count ourselves, our old sinful nature, as having been crucified with him and buried with him uh, through baptism unto death. And so our old man, our old self, our old way of life, our sinful nature, died with Christ and was buried with him in our baptism. That's the symbolism. As we went down into the water, our old self buried with Christ. But just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too are raised up to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4. Our sins were nailed to the cross of Christ and buried with him. Leave them there. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Christ's body was broken for those sins, not so that you can live in them, but so that you can be set free from the power and penalty of sin. The true biblical Jesus endured the wrath of God against all of your sin if you are in him. And therefore, he tolerates none of it in you. Do not live in that which caused Christ to suffer. Battle sin all the way down. Leave no corner of your heart untouched. Fight your sin, not in order to earn salvation, 
but because you have salvation. Christ has set you free from sin, not for sin. Live in the freedom that he purchased. Come and eat of the bread of life that you may live.